0: Before we get this episode started, we wanted to let you know a little bit about what's going on with the Arbitration Station in the near future. We got invited by the ICA organization to go down under to Sydney, Australia, to record live, well not live, we're going to be recording there and sending it to you as soon as we can, as soon as we edit and get our volumes right, but we will be recording from ICA and we have some of the speakers at the ICA conference to come and meet with us privately. We even got our own room, hey now. And we are going to be releasing the episodes as soon as we can edit them and giving a few episodes dedicated uh, exclusively to the ECA Congress. So for those that couldn't make it down to Sydney or couldn't really afford it, we will be giving you a little window on what goes down in the ECA Conference in 2018. We're very excited about that. So, follow us on uh, the iTunes app and don't forget to tweet at us at at the arb station and to write us at the arbitration station at gmail.com. And now, without further ado, here is your regularly scheduled programming.
1: We're back with your favorite arbitration podcast, The Arbitration Station, this time recording in Stockholm with both of us in the same room, at least for part of the episode.
0: Yes, because we fly on over to New York to talk to Victoria Kummer in an interview about the seat of arbitration in
1: New York. You fly. I fly. Metaphorically. Electronically. Yeah. I'm not on this interview either. That's a lot of Brian talking to cool people this season. I'm pushing you out, Joel. It, it, it's ironic because <laughs> you're supposed to be the one who, who logs 80-hour weeks, and I'm supposed to be the lazy academic.
0: Right, but you're also moving countries.
1: Yeah. Multiple. That, that's true. That's true.
0: But she is an arbitrator, a mediator, used to be counsel at a big law firm in New York, and um, also writes for practical law at Thompson Routers. So she writes like practical notes on certain issues related to arbitration or related to litigation. Um, so she has many hats as well. And she, the whole package. The whole package. Does she have a podcast though? No. She's, but she's on ours. <laughs> and she, uh, she was very great to talk to and extremely informative. And we got into a little bit of mediation because I wanted her to respond to our. Happy fun time topic of mediation. Who even cares? <laughs>
1: uh, she she did care. <laughs> oh, good. And does care. <laughs> she answered the call. Mm-hmm. Then we talked to uh, Michael Cotterly. Yes. It's it's uh, he's not French Canadian. He's Canadian Canadian. Canadian Canadian. Yeah, so it's with an English pronunciation. Right. Yeah. Did you ask him about how to pronounce his name? No. Oh. Which which you said when we talked about <laughs> pronunciations that you always shall. You should I always should. ask about. Yeah. Okay, Michael Cotterley. Anyway, uh, at least uh, on uh, on the top five of my list of favorite Canadian arbitration practitioners, <laughs> maybe <laughs> even top three. Wow! Uh, who is a senior associate with Freshfields in London and uh, an expert on damages, which is something we both wanted to do for quite some time. Very interesting aspect of international arbitration that is often overlooked simply because lawyers typically cannot count and try to refrain from even trying.
0: <laughs> yeah, you become very niche if you become the damages guy, especially at a firm. They'll
1: be like, this looks pretty nasty. Get our damages guy in here. And he comes in with a, you know, a suit. Yeah, there was a time when I was working for IU Reporter when they tried to make me the damages person because it, it seems that that is, of course, what uh, many uh, law firms especially are interested in when it comes to new cases. They mm-hmm. want to know the damages holdings because it comes up. Every every time, basically, there's an award on the merits. I think I did maybe four or five analyses of of damages, holdings, uh, and then I stopped.
0: I <laughs> well, wasn't it's so very good hard. At it. <laughs> it's so hard to like go down and dig deep to really understand what happened, and then bring it up at like you know high level summary of what happened because. It's so fact-based. There's all these economic principles, like, what did this mean? What was actually
1: recovered? How could they recover that? How did they calculate it? And at the end of the day, you have to tell that story to a tribunal of three lawyers. So you both need to grasp all the nitty-gritty stuff, but then also explain it to a (laughs) (laughs) three-year-old. Exactly. This we will ask Michael about, and then we will open our cans of beer and uh, talk about some career-related happy fun time. Yes,
0: we will be talking about billing. We will be talking about how associates bill, whether they bill ethically, morally, diligently, whether they bill when they go to the bathroom, et cetera. So your academic brain can pick mine on how we um, do that.
1: So I just got back from the SEC. I was there doing some research. They, they told me you don't speak Norwegian.
2: <laughs> oh, no.
0: <laughs>
1: should I tell the story? Should yeah, you tell yeah the story? please. <laughs>
0: So I was working at the SEC during my secondment and part of uh, legal counsel's job is that you appoint arbitrators or suggest arbitrators for the board to then appoint. And I was looking and part of the discussion and this, these are actually the SEC is going to publish um, how their practices on how to how they appoint arbitrators. I think they have already. They have. So this isn't divulging confidential information. But part of it is to look at the languages that they speak to see if there's any, you know, any mul- multiple language problems. So I was looking at this and I was like, OK, um, it's Swedish parties, but the contract is in Norwegian. And I was like, okay, I need to find someone who speaks Swedish and Norwegian. So I like go through all, you know, old arbitrators and looking through all the, and, you know, we had, there was like some, it wasn't a list, but it was like, you know, a document that I had from, from other legal counsel to give me like some arbitrators to think of. And they had their language specifications. None of them had Swedish or Norwegian together. And I was just like, oh, this is, this is bad. So I bring up a list and then I present it to the board and I said, hey everyone, uh, here's my suggested uh, names for to be appointed as arbitrator. Unfortunately, I couldn't find anyone that speaks Norwegian and Swedish and then it was completely silent. The problem with that, everyone, <laughs> is that they understand each other completely. It's the, it's the exact same language. Exact
1: same language, it's just different
0: pronunciation.
1: <laughs> but I like the story even more when you actually hung up on somebody on the phone who spoke Norwegian to you because you ended up saying, huh, huh, so many times that you had to actually hang up and blame the reception.
0: I asked how, I, could, I was thinking to myself how I could get out of it in a professional manner instead of saying, I'm sorry you have this multi-million dollar claim and you're talking to someone at the SEC who doesn't know what what you're even t- saying right now. Even though I could speak Swedish pretty much at that time, nor I mean, if you're listening to Norwegian, it just sounds completely different, so. Yeah, it is a different language. But not as, as a native speaker, you could uh, definitely understand them.
1: Yeah, w- would you put Norwegian on your resume now? Five
0: years <laughs> yeah, later? Reading Norwegian, uh, and then, so I thought the most professional way was because it was a landline to just touch that little button that hangs up <laughs> <laughs> without making a noise.
1: And then running into Swedish co-counsel like that. You're going to get a phone call in Please Norwegian pretty soon. Please pick up the phone. Please pick it up so I don't have to.
0: I wasn't being bad employee. I was actually being a very prudent employee. I think Dis-
1: this was thinking on your feet. This was a good solution in a complicated situation. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? I was trying to save face for myself and the SEC. Yeah, you did a good job, I think. Maybe the <laughs> SEC would disagree. Maybe. All yeah, right, yeah, yeah, now yeah. that I've embarrassed you sufficiently, let's uh, move on to some substantive arbitration station segments. So
0: the reason why we have Victoria on the line is that she is going to represent, in the best way possible, uh, New York City and New York as a place of arbitration. And we got in touch through her affiliation with Thompson Router, where she writes for practical law, but that's not the profile. That we that she will you know talk about today. It will be um her background starting as a you know working at a firm in big law, and then also working as an arbitrator and a mediator. All of which I want to talk to you about in these twenty minutes. Um, can you just go, kind of go through your background and how you came to be this arbitrator mediator position you are in today?
3: Sure, absolutely. Let me let me though first correct you right out of the box. Please do. Um, the, the Practical Law is a Thomson Reuters company. Thomson Reuters, right. um, okay. Like you know, Reuters, the big news um, company, and um, and it's actually, I have to say, you know, I want to, I, I don't want to do cart before the horse, but um, it's being there and writing about arbitration at Practical Law is kind of the culmination of all of the stuff that led up to it, starting with um my work as as a litigator as an advocate in um various international arbitrations really around the world um i i retired from practicing law um as as a partner at a big firm here in new york um about 5 years ago now oh my god oh, wow. and what kind of cases and, were you um,
0: working on as a partner there um really commercial Commercial litigation um, in, in both court and in arbitral proceedings. Um, Any specific you know, really, subject matter?
3: It would just run the gamut. Oh, okay. You know, it could okay. Be anything. Um, lots of franchising work, um, but you know, really, it could be anything. Um, if it was, if there was a commercial aspect to it, you know, I did it. Right. Um, even though I was based in New York, I wasn't actually in the New York courts all that much. My my practice was really everywhere. Um, and as you know, with arbitrations and you can just n- decide between the parties where you want to seat at the arbitration, um, many times I was in New York for the arbitrations, um, but you, you could be anywhere. You could, you know, end up arbitrating in London or just, it could be anywhere. So, um,
2: Did the you, whole time sorry, pretty go ahead. much
3: that I was doing my, my, my law practice, I was also an arbitrator. Um... I started out arbitrating at FINRA, um, but I was approached by a case manager at um, the American Arbitration Association, um, basically because I was advocating a lot of arbitrations, and um, they were international arbitrations, but a lot of domestic arbitrations as well, and the case manager said to me one day, you know, have you ever thought about being an arbitrator? And this was back in the days when there weren't a whole lot of women arbitrators. And I said, well, you know, maybe someday, I don't know. And she said, well, you know, you can do it while you're still practicing. And we really encourage women to apply to our commercial panel because it's overwhelmingly, you know, white guys and with gray hair.
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I said,
3: okay why not and so i did and i met with the people at the at the american arbitration association they couldn't have been lovelier and i and i was accepted on the panel and so so they have I a list they have
0: like a panel that oh, you kind of have to gain access to this panel to be an
3: arbitrator they have yeah. The whole application process and in fact i've written about this for practical law which your your listeners can go to at us i've actually written about how to become an arbitrator in the u.s oh and how perfect to become a mediator in the u.s um and so that just sort of was the the jumping off point because from the from joining the aaa commercial panel and then i was admitted into the icdr panel the icdr is a International Center of Dispute Resolution, which is the international arm of the AAA. Um, and then that just sort of snowballed, and I'm on now the CPR panel as well, and um, I'm a panelist for the ICC. So, you yeah, know, it's, it's, there's, there's just a, an awful lot of arbitration work. And, of course, I'm perfectly situated because I'm in Manhattan, which really is such a prime place for international arbitration. You've got every resource conceivable available to you. I splintered into mediation um, just because you asked about that. Uh, I splintered into mediation about 10 years ago, um, not thinking that I'd be any good at it because I'm such a fierce advocate and because I'm so sort of uh, decisive and, and, you know, kind of um, strong-minded when it comes to, resolving things. Right. And I thought, well, that won't work in the mediation at all. And in <laughs> fact, I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, it actually helped me tremendously in my cases as an advocate, once I understood really much better how the mediation process worked. And I think that arbitrators actually make terrific mediators, or can at least make terrific mediators. So that's how I ended up in mediation as well.
0: Interesting. And we're definitely going to tap into that. But let's unpack what you said before about uh, being – Manhattan. it's perfect that you're in Manhattan and it being the center of international arbitration, especially in the U.S. I mean, I know some people in D.C. may beg to differ, and I know um, – and, other, and others – definitely not Los Angeles. But what do you think I mean, you've been an advocate, so maybe advocating someone to put the seat as New York or maybe as an arbitrator thinking about where to place a seat in the event the parties didn't come to agreement. When you see New York as a seat, not, and we can split this up into both as a venue, but also as you know, the applicable law, what, do you kind of, what comes to mind when you see as a unique selling point or unique characteristic of New York?
3: primary thing uh, about um, New York City, it, what, it's sort of a perfect storm. There isn't one single thing that stands out. It's a combination of a bunch of excellences. Um, it's a combination of excellent counsel who are, you know, very, very fully versed in all the nuances of international arbitration. They've been doing it longer than anybody else. And they've been doing it at the highest levels. Um, That combined with a collection of the most experienced and sophisticated neutrals. So you're going, if if you're seated in New York, you have right there at your fingertips a wealth of terrific, really at the top of their game, arbitrators who preside over your case. But combine that with the fact that you have courts, once you have an award. That are really, really at the 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 premier courts in the United States on understanding international disputes, um, respect for arbitration and the awards under the FAA, under the New York Convention, under the Panama Convention. Both the state and the federal courts here in New York are the premier courts when it comes to really, really understanding the issues in an international arbitration and doing the right thing. So if you're interested in in, um, an excellent arbitration process combined with courts that have the utmost understanding and respect for your agreement and the eventual award, then New York is really the only choice.
0: Right. Right but what, what just for the people that aren't from the United States do you which court is it the same court that would hear an in our measure in support of arbitration is it the same court that would hear let's say a set aside or a challenge in New York
3: well it depends on your arbitration agreement okay. i mean and it depends on whether one of the conventions applies and all of that right it depends on the residence of the parties but an and arbitration that's seated here in New York, you can always go to New York court for it to be enforced. If it's if it's a money judgment against someone who is is not here, then you've got to go through, you know, the extra jurisdictional hoops. And it right, right. just depends on your strategy as to whether or not you want to go collect it in Taiwan or wherever your, you know, respondent is, or do you want to seize assets of that company here in New York? I mean, you know, that, yeah. That's sort of down in, in the nitty gritty. But what what I can say with absolute confidence is that your New York counsel will know and understand those issues better than anybody else, and will give you you know the perfect advice on how to proceed.
0: And what about the arbitrator pool? You, I mean, we talked about you know cases international cases that come to New York. You really have these um, advocates that are well versed in arbitration and at the top of their game. And now the arbitrators, I, I, most likely the AAA, but less likely the ICDR. I mean, how likely is it that you're going to get a full American panel if you have an international dispute? And so is the arbitrator well, pool completely diverse nationality-wise?
3: The arbitrator pool is, is completely diverse. But again, all of that stuff is going to be dictated by your agreement. Right. Um, and, and your agreement concerning whose rules you're going to be. Um, proceeding under. If you're proceeding under ICC rules or ICDR rules or CPR, JAMS also has a a very strong presence here in New York. JAMS is, um, I think it stands for Judicial Arbitration and Mediation Services. Um, It used to be separate, JAMS separate from End Dispute. But they then combined and they do arbitration and mediation. And the thing about jams is their pool of neutrals is almost entirely former judges, mm. many of whom are former federal judges. Um, so again, you've got you know um, a wonderfully deep bench when it comes to your pool of neutrals. Um, that leads me to but another as, question. As to whether or not you're going to have you know strictly New Yorkers who are Americans, yes. are you going to have? non Americans all of that is going to depend on the party's agreement and the rules that you agreed to proceed under
0: that leads me to the next question that um, a lot of especially Europeans have this myth that if you have um, if you have a case decided by the ICDR and you have a bunch of you know Americans involved in the process. That there's a lot of phases of the arbitration that will come, become a little bit more Americanized. For example, document production. Um, yeah, in your yeah, yeah. in your experience as arbitrator, can you kind of comment on whether you see it bleeding into arbitration, or maybe tools you have to prevent that from happening? I
3: yeah, I can. You know, I I tell you that's a particular. Um, concern of mine and it's, you know, one of the things I, I get on my soapbox about
2: because,
3: <laughs> um, you know, more and more attorneys are uh, representing clients who have arbitration agreements and so more and more attorneys are finding themselves representing um, entities or individuals in arbitrations, and they think, oh, well I'll just, you know, use the the, the same tools in my toolkit that I use in court litigation and I'll just bring that to the arbitral proceeding and they they can't and they shouldn't and one of the beauties of the arbitration pool the pool of arbitrators here in New York is that we see this stuff all the time and we we cut it off at the knees. Arbitration Good. isn't court litigation. And especially when it comes to an international arbitration that the non-US parties are are understandably reluctant to engage in in all of the discovery shenanigans that American lawyers routinely pull, and we're sensitive to it. We understand it, and we put a halt to it. You know, you know the the rules of of just about every major international arbitration institution um, provide that the discovery that any party is allowed to seek from the other is, first and foremost, a function of the party's agreement. And where they don't agree, the rules provide some guidelines. Um, in the international context, they're much more circumscribed than a domestic U.S. arbitration. Uh, but ultimately, it's in the arbitrator's power to and, and jurisdiction to rule on whether or not, you know, one party gets all the discovery they want or if it gets curtailed. Right. So, um, the, the pool of neutrals that you have in, in arbitration seated in New York, even if they're, you know, New Yorkers, um, understand those issues and, and don't allow parties to, you know, American parties, American lawyers, to run roughshod over the foreign parties and demand excessive discovery and all of that. I mean... There, there are definitely instances where you don't really have any discovery or much discovery. Um, you know, that, the, the thing about the, the New York-seeded neutrals is we're really sensitive to that issue. And, you know, I've certainly been on panels where we just don't allow any
2: any wow. discovery,
3: any document discovery, no depositions. I mean, depositions are strongly disfavored anyway. Yeah, definitely. And you know, if if you're proceeding under institutional rules or even unsuitable, even sort of an ad, on an ad hoc basis, where the there is no agreement and one party strongly uh, resists, you know, succumbing to th- this kind of overburdening and and cumbersome discovery we simply don't permit the discovery to occur i mean it's just that simple right you know you you ha- you have your proof you assembled your proof you present your <laughs> proof
0: is, is are there any other surprises that um, in like international counsel kind of see or any procedural quirks that international counsel see that they have commented on not only necessarily in the procedure of the arbitration but maybe afterwards and in, in any challenge proceedings or enforcement
3: well, um international council sometimes I mean and and I'm not involved at that stage of the process because right. post award my my work is done. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But but this this is the kind of thing that international council have commented on just generally um during the course of an arbitration and that is this notion that um, once you have an award then you're you know, buckle your seatbelt, you're ready for a whole second round of intense litigation in the court regarding the confirmation or vacature of mm-hmm. the award, and, you know, that the New York courts recognize um, non-statutory grounds, such as manifest disregard of the law, and, um, and there, and new york courts are not the only ones that you know have occasion to weigh in on the viability of manifest disregard of the law as a ground for vacating or not recognizing um an arbitration award so here's the bottom line about that yes. and for more information your listeners can log into practicallaw.com and figure this out for yourself But the law is constantly evolving on this but the bottom line is that If you have an arbitrator who goes completely off the rails um, and is completely disregarding law that was presented and argued to the arbitrator and that is conclusively binding on the proceeding, then whether you call it manifest disregard for the law or you call it the arbitrator exceeding their authority because they're not authorized to do something that the law doesn't authorize, and that would be a statutory ground, whichever way you call it, it's an extraordinarily narrow and, and not very often recognized ground right. to, to challenge an arbitration award that should never have been issued.
0: That's, that's very so, true. That's
1: very true.
3: Yeah. And, and the, the, the other side of that coin, of course, is that when you have a pool of neutrals, who are so sophisticated in these issues and so well-versed in what the law is, and their abilities are really at the top of their game in understanding, construing, and applying the law, then you've just, you've just minimized to, to practically zero the possibility that any court would recognize manifest disregard of the law of the, ultim- of the resulting award.
0: You kind of alluded to the fact that uh, when we were talking about Manhattan, saying that there is a lot of good resources in the city and any, everything from venues to organizations. Um, is there something that you can tell us a bit about
2: that?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I, I am so proud to be a New Yorker these days because we have the premier, most incredible facility that opened up just a few years ago. The New York International Arbitration Center, um, NYAC for short. And the thing about NYAC is it's housed right on 42nd Street in Midtown, across the street from the Chrysler Building. For those of you who love New York as I do, <laughs> um, and it's a it's a gorgeous facility. It's in the same sort of office structure as the International Center for Dispute Resolution. Um, I mean, they're separate entities, but they share the same you know overall. Um, Building structure right. and and NIAC is, I mean it's it's an incredible facility. It's sort of it's sort of the UN for international arbitration. So I mean they've got you know a very high tech. Um, they they've got you know wonderful facilities for having people appear by video by Skype. Translation services. I mean,
2: oh, they have got
3: enormous rooms for the arbitrations. They, they also accommodate mediations if people need that. Um, it's, it's just a, a fantastic, unparalleled facility. Wow. And it was really spearheaded by the former chief judge of New York's highest court, Judge Kay. Um, for years, she was the driving force to make that, that facility a reality, to get it built and put all the pieces in place and you know we were all very sad when she died i think about 2 years ago now um we we lost a luminary in the field mm. um but it it's now headed by a terrific executive director uh Rekha Rangashari um has been in I, I don't know maybe a year or so um and she's doing a terrific job and um you know they 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 have an amazing they have an amazing board they have you know directors who are luminaries in the field of international arbitration from New York and and, and everywhere but primarily New York and it's just an amazing facility. Um, they just signed a letter of a uh, memorandum of understanding I guess or a letter of understanding with the ICC for cooperation um, between the ICC and NIAC. and, oh. You know, yeah. So which is also very exciting so more and more ICC arbitrations will be housed there right so you know you don't have to use any one facility you know I mean many times people just use their their lawyers offices um but if you really want state-of-the-art tech and accommodations for your arbitration and um, especially if you have international parties who aren't going to physically appear but right. have to appear by some other means and you're going to need translation services NIAC is really the ideal facility and it is, you know, it's just a testament to, you know, the strong, the really thriving, neutral community we have here for international arbitration.
0: Exactly. Now, for the last part of this, just a few minutes, I really want to pick your brain on your mediation experience um, because we we did a segment on mediation and I think the title was Mediation, Who Even? Like, Does It Even Matter? Um, because arbitra- <laughs> arbitration practitioners are so—I mean, it's such a division between the field, even though it seems like we're, we're all coming from the same place. It's like sex of a religion almost. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, I, I, what's your experience with mediation, and maybe even, you know, your experience with counseling a client on whether to go to arbitration versus mediation? What would be an ideal case that's, you know, a client's like, I really want to go to arbitration, and you would say, okay, your case fits perfectly within the mediation context. Wow, that's
3: that. That's a. That's a big question. Tough question. Um, <laughs> okay. And, and I, I mean, I hate to sound like a lawyer about this. I hate to sound like a lawyer on most things, but <laughs> I hate to sound like a lawyer about this. But you know, there, there really isn't sort of you know a, a one simple size fits all answer right. to that question. It it it, it always completely depends disp- depends on the dispute, and it depends on who your mediator is. I mean, the benefit of mediation is. There are definitely cases that you can resolve, and if you resolve it in mediation, you are saving your client a ton of money. Right Now, a lot of the money you're saving your client is in the form of your own fees, <laughs> so there, there's this sort of you know, tendency of, of counsel to not really want to go down the most efficient route because the, the fees are lower, but that's a very short-sighted um, and cynical mm. perspective. Um, because the client who um, ends up paying exorbitantly for the services isn't likely to come back, and and the best lawyering is repeat business.
2: Right. Uh, a
3: satisfied client comes back with the next case. So mediation makes sense for the lawyer, but most importantly, it makes sense for the client. Um, depending on the case, another benefit of mediation is you. You as counsel, and to some extent as as the client, you get to kind of suss out the other side's case a little more before you end up actually, you know, drawing your guns and, you know, getting into an arbitration or in court. You can size up the other side. You know, what kind of a witness is that that person going to make? You get a little... a little peek at what kind of documentary support they may have for their position. That's you true found out their legal theory. Um, if you're completely in the dark about what this case is about, mediation is can be you know, a vehicle for not just resolving it, but better understanding the case. And even if the case doesn't resolve, understanding it better helps both sides in the long run, because streamline, it can streamline yeah. eventual litigation, whether it's in court or in arbitration. Right. As a neutral, I'm, I find that mediation is very helpful. Of course, you don't mediate a case that you arbitrate, so, you, you, I mean, it's not wise to do so. Right. So, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm one or the other. Um, but as a neutral, as a mediator, um, it's depending on the case. Sometimes parties just need an opportunity to vent. So they can vent at me, and they're not, you know, giving anything away by venting to the other side or or um, getting people's hackles up by venting at the other side. And, you know, I can sort of start to understand maybe a little better what's really going on in this case and find a way to resolve it that's, you know, kind of creative, and, and that's very satisfying. Um, but sometimes what the parties really need is a reality check. Um you know, your case is crap,
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or your
3: law is completely off, right. or that witness is nobody's going to believe that witness, or whatever it is. Sometimes parties really need that reality check. Sometimes the lawyer wants you to give his client that reality check, because the client won't listen to him. Right. You know? <laughs> so the client's now hearing from a neutral third party what the weaknesses of the case are. Um, So every case is different. It depends. There's a lot of different
2: reasons
3: that that a mediation might not be a good idea, right? um, Including sort of the other side of the coin of everything I just said to you. Um,
0: (laughs) Did you have to train? Did you have to go to a a mediation training? Because I feel yeah. Yeah. What did that include? Just like.
3: Well, you know, there, there are a lot of, you know, New York being New York, there are um, a lot of opportunities um, for mediator training, in part because the courts here in New York have mandatory mediation programs. Um, the federal court, the Southern District here in New York, I've been on their mediation panel for about 10 years now, um, and they have automatic mediation, referral to mediation of a whole host of cases, different kinds of cases that um, automatically, they just go to mediation. And so they provide a training for that. The New York State Bar provides its own training to comply with the commercial division, which is the the state Supreme Court um, here in New York. The the commercial division is the specialized commercial court for that trial level court. Wow. Um, and they, too, have a mediation program that I'm a part of, and they provide of um, one or two day training, I think, on that, which is terrific. Plus, the ADR providers provide mediation training. So, I've I've been through the AAA's mediation training as well to then be impaneled on the AAA mediation panel. Um, and you can go so, even you know, as there's a,
0: there's a as a foreign mediator, for example. You can go to these um, exactly trainings. okay
3: exactly. They're available, and um, I think the Southern Districts may be free. Uh, wow. You sign up for it in advance, and they're held, like, maybe once a year. Um, AAAs you pay for, I don't remember, New York. I think the state bars you have to pay for also, but I'm not right. positive about that. But whatever it is, I mean, there's a, there's. i um, I've also written about how to become a mediator, available in practical law, and you can find that information <laughs> there as well. Uh, I don't remember offhand which ones you have to pay for and which ones you don't. But the thing about mediation is that it should not be something that arbitrators avoid, because just because we can't mediate a case that we're presiding over doesn't mean that we can't bring our arbitrator skills into the mediation room. As I said, sometimes a party needs a reality check. They need what's called an evaluative process, Mm -hmm. which allows you to evaluate as a third party neutral each side's case, and you're not divulging that to the other side, of course but you're giving them a reality check, and that's precisely the sort of critical thinking about a case that you engage in as an arbitrator.
0: Right, definitely. And well, as you said, this is this, is, this type of stuff you can find on practical law, and I think especially for international and foreign lawyers trying to think about how it works in the US, it's such a good resource. Uh, check Victoria out there, and thank you so much for taking the time and explaining a little bit about New York
3: it's been a lot of fun all right i'll see you next time you're in new york
0: all right sounds good
1: so are you are you officially the, the the numbers person the 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 guy who does this within the firm or is it just something that you happen to be interested in
4: I think it happens to be something that I'm interested in. I, I do have, uh, before I studied law, I have a degree in economics, uh, so I get probably unfairly labeled with the brush that I'm number, uh, that I'm numerate or numbers literate uh, and that I'm comfortable with this. I, I also just think it's a situation where I've never shied away from it. Uh, I am unfortunately not afraid of using Microsoft Excel. Uh, I'm not afraid of having to do some, you know, calculations on the back of a fag packet, which is the expression that's used in England to describe you know sort of quick calculations. Uh, so uh, I, I, yeah, uh, the, I've heard the expression "quantum boy" used,
1: uh, but I. He's a it superhero. Is, it,
4: it is. It is. It is not. It's the it worst is possible
1: it's like peripheral vision man or something. it's not very useful it
4: it, 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 it isn't it is not the best title but um, I'll, I'll, I'll take it and if it means i can add value to a case then so be it
0: that's so i mean i think it's a bit of chicken in the egg type of scenario where it's like are you good at quantum well no you've just you're good at quantum because you've done it so many times it's like people who specialize in oil and gas. It's like you're not an oil and gas guy, you just have done it so many times. yeah, you
1: just uh, raise your hand once and then all of a sudden you've had five cases. yeah, I don't think that's an unfair characterization
0: so as quantum boy, uh, do you do you uh are you brought in when is are you brought in right when the case is being assessed right in the beginning, or do you think it's more appropriate to kind of leave that for a later stage? of the drafting of a submission, for example? When do you think it's the best time to start looking at the quantum questions?
4: I I think it depends on the case and I think it depends on the client. Um, I think at the end of the day, leaving aside of when you quote, bring in a quantum person, I think everyone should be thinking about quantum at the very outset of any matter. There's a number of reasons for that. Uh, first of all, if you're going to be deciding whether or not I want to pursue this case, you need to know how much is this case worth. If I'm defending a case, I need to know what is my exposure here. Uh, and that's going to have a lot of impact on how you approach the case. It's going to have a huge impact on budgeting. Uh, how you know how should I staff this case, et cetera. Uh, and so whether you bring an external expert on board, for example, is another question. But at the very outset of any case, it just makes business and legal sense to be looking into how much a case is worth at the outset.
0: And how much is the client involved in that initial assessment?
4: Um, again, it, it depends on cl- from client to client. I mean, keeping in mind, you know, if we're in the business context, which we generally are, you know, businesses are in, uh, they they are in the, the, the typical exercise of figuring out on a regular basis, what is their bottom line? Uh, so, in relation to an an ongoing uh, business concern, they should be tracking uh, profit and loss on a regular basis. And if something is then impeding on those profits and losses, they should be in in a position, they should have someone within the company to at least take an initial view and saying, this is costing us X million dollars, uh, for example. Uh, So, you know, is it the legal department doing it? Not necessarily, but there should be someone, even at least within the commercial side, within a client who's, you know, keeping track of uh, where where money's coming from, and if they're losing money, why they're losing that money.
1: Before we delve into the the deeper, nerdier stuff, may I ask you something that we did not uh, prepare you for? Sure. And it's a standard thing that goes through all the segments almost that we do, and that is the extent to which there is a meaningful difference in commercial arbitration and in investment arbitration for for everything that you are about to tell us. Right. Because I primarily encounter these issues in investment arbitration, but I get the sense that... It's basically the same things popping up over and over again. I, I, I'm interested in whether or not it's the same for commercial arbitration, or if that is a different universe altogether.
4: Well, I think I, we can start from you know where your principles of value uh, of damages compensation are, are going to come from. Uh, you know, typically when you're thinking about the investor-state context. You're usually thinking in the context of expropriation or something expropriation adjacent, well, where the uh, where the measures taken are such as to essentially. Uh, you know, completely destroy the entire value of a business, which will then raise questions as to calculating the value of a business. Uh, you can have contractual disputes uh, where it is alleged that the same implications uh, of that is, is that a business has, has been destroyed and therefore you have to calculate the value of a business. But it's more often that you're going to have a more discreet claim in relation to a breach of contract. You're going to have to sort of ascertain what is uh, what are the implications of the breach of contract and what have I lost? Um, so as a practical matter, the exercises, I think, can be quite different between the contractual and the investor state context. Um, formally, I mean, legally, you're going to be dealing with different um, legal bases uh, for um uh, for uh, a damages uh, calculation. Uh, so, you know, obviously uh, in investor state, you'd start with the treaty. And if the treaty doesn't deal with the standard of compensation, you'd go through, you know, the principles in Chorzow Factory, uh, you know, wiping out all the consequences of the illegal act. Uh, you know, if you're in a contract situation, the contract might speak to damages. For example, there might be a liquidated damages clause uh, or there might be a cap on liability in a contract. And so, you know, it might be that a lot of the difficult legal issues or even the factual issues have already been dealt with by the parties in advance. Um, and so there, there's just a lot more things at play uh, and, and in, a, in a contractual dispute versus an investor state dispute.
0: And I guess it also depends what side of the case you're on, right? I mean, if you're talking about if, if you don't have a legal basis that's particularly prescribed in the treaty or in the contract and you're going to this Charzo factory, as you said, principle, yeah. then you're going to kind of Pick what's the best advocacy for your client
4: right? Yeah that, that, and that's exactly it and you know even you know, under English law um, you know there's going to be you know it's going to be to you know get the amount of money which, which puts the injured party in the same position they would have been had they not sustained the wrong you know there's always the question of uh, you know for example, could I get some sort of opportunity cost calculation? Uh, you know, you know, actually I would have invested this money and I would have gotten X percent return on this. You know, do I get to add that to my damages claim, for example?
0: Right. And I guess the missing arm of this, you have the client, you have you, Quantum Boy, and then you have this third arm, which I guess is the um, experts that you engage. So, I mean, if you're talking about trying to make this assessment as early as possible, when does the engagement of the expert come into play?
4: Well, I I think it is very useful to get an expert involved as soon as possible. And, you know, when one says an expert, I think what you really mean is someone whose business it is to value things, uh, someone whose business it is to calculate uh, how much damages are owing. Uh, And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need a formal report uh, for example, it might just be about getting someone on side to test ideas against. It might be that a client is sufficiently sophisticated that they have someone in house uh, who can at least do at least you know a quick and dirty calculation of how much uh, this is worth. Um, if you are starting to think about commencing a claim, uh, for example, there's a lot of value if the client's willing to sort of to pay the cost uh, to getting an expert in early. Uh, because you're going to want to get them caught up in understanding the nature of the dispute, the facts of the dispute, and in the case of valuing a business, the nature of that business as soon as possible.
1: And it's in in your experience in, in the scenario where there's no expert and the client isn't particularly sophisticated, how good are lawyers, arbitration lawyers, maybe specifically <laughs> at doing this in within law firms? Not necessarily speaking about your own firm, but in your experience. <laughs> Uh, I mean,
4: I, I haven't been. I, I think it depends on, 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 on the nature of the case. You know, if this is a situation where you can ask the client to say, what was the contract for? And they say it was a contract for widgets. I was supposed to get uh, I was supposed to get uh, an order in for 200 widgets. This is how much they would have cost. You know, that's a calculation that presumably a lawyer can do. Uh, if a lawyer is going to start getting into how much was the factory that was expropriated worth, I, I don't think that's something uh, a lawyer dare even sort of play around with. Like, oh, I just, you know, in my spare time happened to construct a discounted cash flow and I came up with, <laughs> with, with evaluation. I, I, I don't recommend that.
1: No, you said you said the the key phrase. So let's let's move into the hardcore stuff. The yes. discounted cash flow method. Now, <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow. Actually, <laughs> so th- this is, of course, the most used valuation method, uh, I guess, in investment treaty arbitration valuations. Or is that even a correct assumption to start off with?
4: Well, when you say used, I mean I think certainly claimants are going to put them forward quite often. We can get into how often. Uh, tribunals uh, agree to them. I think the starting point is to understand uh, that and if I could go on a bit of a uh, side note for a second. By all means. It, it is, um, I, I went to uh, this talk with uh, the infamous Mr., uh, Professor DeModeran uh, fr- from NYU uh, and he, just, he gave this talk on valuation and he explained that there's a difference between value and price. And the reason why that's confusing is that if you look at any sort of legal regime that talks about calculating, calculating fair market value, they look at fair market value and they define it as the price an arms-length individual would pay. And Professor de Lodern says, no, 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 uh, price is not at all the same as value. Those are two different things. If markets were perfect price would be the same as value, but markets aren't perfect. Mm. And so price does not reflect value in most circumstances. And and why I'm telling you this is that I then asked a question. I said, well, then what is value? Because I've always understood value to mean price, because that's the legal definition all lawyers use. And he says, value is your ability to generate income and then factored with the points of growth and risk. And that's value.
1: That's just way uh, more complicated and less satisfying than a market price a buyer at arm's length would be willing to pay, which is well, a much. And-
4: you know and and it gets even worse right because his whole his whole his whole idea was that also valuation at the end of the day is a story and how you value a company depends on the story that you tell for that company and he gave various examples so he discussed uber and he said how you value uber depends on how you characterize uber uh you know you, you know is it is it a private taxi company or is it, a, okay. you know, is, it a, is it a matching company that matches consumers together? Or is it a movement, is it basically a moving company or a logistics company, and that they're not, in fact, a taxi company, but it's gonna go beyond taxis. It's gonna go, it'll start moving things. You know, Uber Eats is just the start. You know, All those questions of how you characterize Uber would depend on how you value
2: it.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, a very good story for a New Yorker article, but good luck convincing a tribunal that that type of right. storytelling goes into how to quantify damages. I sell widgets, but I'm really selling the dream.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and we can get into the story uh, shortly. But I I guess what I wanted to get to when I'm discussing that it's about ability to generate income and then growth and then risk is that's essentially what a DCF is. Um, A DCF is essentially just measuring cash flows over time. And then it's discounting that to calculate the present value of a company. That's any, any actual financial experts listening are going to murder me for that oversimplification. They aren't listening, uh, but the, the junior
1: <laughs> associates uh, uh, in arbitration departments are listening.
4: Uh, well, then they'll probably be okay with that definition. Uh, but but the reality is, is that um, while we talk about the fact of whether or not DCF is quote-unquote reliable, the reality is I think in the business community, at least this is my understanding, is that when individuals as business people are valuing opportunities, they are themselves using a form of of a discounted cash flow model in order to value that business opportunity. And it's because you only look at the worth of a business at its ability to generate income. And if they can't generate income, then where is its value? So, you, you know, people always say, you know, it's crazy that everyone's claiming on these DCFs. But actually, it's, it's really hard to explain to clients the contrary, because clients say, I don't understand. This is how we did this valuation. Why are you telling me that this is crazy and far-fetched and speculative? Because this is exactly what we would have done.
1: So what are some of the factors that go into the discounting part of, of, the, of the, the method?
4: Uh, so you mean in terms of uh, applying a discount rate? Yeah. Yeah. So the discount rate um, essentially has to reflect the uncertainty of the future cash flows. You know, it's just the basic principle. Uh, You know, if I had a pound today, uh, that pound today is worth more than the promise of a pound to me in five years uh, and, and, and there's various reasons for that uh, and so you know you need to look into the time value of money and you also need to look at uh the risk uh that that can take place in the future uh, so things that you 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 might look at is uncertainty uh in the business uh, you can look at uncertainty in the circumstances, uh, you know, of the country where where you're where you're investing, uh, you know, and just basic business uncertainties as well. You know, it's just like nothing is a sure thing. You can't treat that cash flow in the future as definitely going to happen. And so you can you can factor for those discounts in one of two ways. You could factor those discounts in certain circumstances where appropriate into the cash flow itself. So you can say, I don't know if this is a sure thing. So you might do it that way. Another way you might do it is you might say, I think the discount rate is the best place to sort of apply all my mixture of risk and I'll just put it in this complicated number. Uh, And that will be the basis upon which we we discount uh, for risk in the future.
0: And just to clarify, it's, you know, the DCF brings you back to the breach date, correct?
4: It'll bring you back to the valuation date, however you may choose to apply it. Right. Uh, so the default is usually date of breach, uh, but in certain circumstances, you can move that valuation date. And there are a number of cases following the principle set out in Chorzow that say, for example, in the case of like an unlawful expropriation, I should be able to move the valuation date. For example, to take advantage of, say, there has been a dramatic change in uh, oil prices, for example. Right. Should I be allowed to take advantage of that so that the state doesn't get a windfall, for example?
0: And because that kind of brings me to, you know, DCF doesn't go all the way into the future because then you have what future damages, which, I mean, you're even speculating even more. Um, What's your experience with valuing that type of claim and and the possibility of recovery?
4: Well, yeah, this is where we start getting into nomenclature issues when you talk about future damages. Um, You know, if you think about a DCF, for example, the DCF is valuing the business at a point in time. Uh, But at the same time, in order to value at that point in time, you are making predictions as to how that business will earn income in the future. Uh, So, you know, a DCF definitionally requires looking into the future, at least from the vantage point of a certain point in time. Um, But I I, I suspect you're talking about another type of future damages. Yes. Yes. And, And this is where things can get... bit hairy and i think it'll depend a lot on the applicable law it'll depend on the nature of the breach it'll depend on the nature of the business and you know there's a lot of factors to think about uh you know brass tacks it's going to come down to do you have evidence to support that these damages would have been incurred for example uh do you you know is the issue ripe uh such that uh you know if in fact they have not yet incurred um, is this a claim that you can bring immediately uh and there's a question of, are those damages too remote? Uh, So I'm using, you know, remoteness, which is, you know, expression that's used in in many common law jurisdictions. Uh, But, you know, it's it's the sort of same idea of, yes, even if you can show, yes, I did incur these damages or these definitely will be incurred. um, Are they too disconnected from the contractual breach itself that it couldn't have been within the contemplation of the parties that that is within your claim. That's a legal question I would say at the end of the day.
1: I've been in, in a few contexts trying to explain to, to Swedish general public in the discussions of CETA and previously TTIP that there is no guaranteed right to compensation for loss of future profits under these treaties in, in, in investor state arbitrations which seems to have That notion seems to have stuck, that in in ISDS you always get compensation for for loss of future profits, but you're basically saying that it's not necessarily so. Well,
2: I
4: I mean, again, it it depends on what you mean by future profits. You know, if I'm claiming the loss of a business uh, and I am claiming it on the basis of of a DCF calculation, you know, definitionally that that considers the the future profits of that company in the process. Right. Um, but, but people don't think that's objectionable, necessarily.
0: It's also
1: if the company is still going on and how yes. that's going to affect
4: yes. it. That's exactly right.
1: Can we, before we move into talking about advocacy, which I think is something we want to spend quite some time on, both of us, yeah. can we please talk about interest rates? Because <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to convince students to write about this for years. For obvious reasons, law students don't care about interest rates. But I think in arbitration, this is a very under-researched area.
4: Well, I think you're right. And if you need to explain why, it's just that interest rates can be super, super, uh, sorry, interest awards uh, and the interest, uh, the the aspect of the award that relates to interest can often be the same amount as the award itself or even greater than the amount of the award. And and so when you look at, you know, what my client is owed, the award itself could be a footnote. Uh, depending on the rate of interest uh, that is awarded, whether it's compounded or, 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 or applied simply, uh, and, um, and and how long before that award is actually satisfied. There was, uh,
1: so, I don't know if you read this. I, I'm looking now as we speak because I reported broke a story about a, a case that I can't remember the fact. Oh yeah, it's Nigeria faces $9 billion plus debt after award. Surfaces because interest increasing by one point twenty five million dollars per day. <laughs> yeah. So the award wasn't that big to begin with, but it was a long time ago, and the interest rate is so high and compounded, it seems, right? Yeah.
4: Yeah, and, and you know it's it's tricky as well now because if you look at the investor stake context, for example, there's now so many decisions on interest, right? And you know, you see you have on the one hand lawyers saying this war they gave this they, they they gave libor plus 2 in this case they gave libor plus 4 but then you also have the experts and like are the experts supposed to come to their own views uh, as to you know what is the time value of money in this case so is it factual is it legal um,
1: but know, what what I is libor that. if we begin there <laughs>
4: LIBOR stands for the London Interbank Offered Rate. It's the interest rate at which banks offer to lend funds to one another uh, in the international interbank market. This is, that uh, I, I, I
1: haven't. I've been told you, Brian, really, or you, Michael, of course, or any of our <laughs> listeners. I have. I have a plan that we're going to do in a, a quiz show on the arbitration <laughs> session, where I gather two or three people on each team, and then I'll be the judge and the host, and Brian will be entertainment. <laughs> so this will be one of the questions. Yes, this is a very good, a uh, classic quiz question. What does LIBOR stand for? But you, you passed with fine colors, Michael.
4: <laughs> what a relief! I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, it makes me a big hit at parties.
1: <laughs> yeah. Quantum boy is here. Ah. <laughs> Okay so LI- libor is sort of the, the the baseline and then you said libor plus 2% libor plus 4% what 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 does that entail so you you start off with libor as some sort of you default. You, you, st- you
4: start off with libor which is the rate yeah. uh and then you add a percentage to that rate uh, and that's usually, you know, that can that rate can be applied uh, on a six month basis, can be applied annually. And then you can apply that rate either simply or you can apply it as compound, you know, compound interest. Uh, if it's not obvious, it's basically when I'm calculating interest every year, I include the interest uh, that had been calculated previously. And I calculate interest on that interest. Uh, so basically the, the amount that interest is being calculated on uh, goes up every year.
1: Is this uncontroversial, the compound part? Because that's something that I, I think does not exist in, in many domestic jurisdictions.
4: Yeah, and so that—that that is my non-hot take that you've basically identified uh, is, from a business perspective, um, compounding makes sense, and again, in the ordinary course of business. Uh, but at the uh, so many domestic uh, provisions that deal with interest. Usually, just happen to provide that it's only done on a simple basis. Um, many of these jurisdictions, of course, also are very prescriptive as to what that interest rate is. Um, and you know, I, from my, I, I'm, I'm Canadian and I used to practice in Ontario, and there would be these charts for prejudgment interest that would give you the applicable interest rate to apply at every single various like month. I think. And saying you'd you'd insert these 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 percentages into a various table to calculate what is the appropriate interest. Um, in, 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 in it seems like in, at least in investor-state arbitration, um, compound interest seems to be more the norm than the exception at this
1: stage in the game. So, given these uncertainties and given how how different jurisdictions approach this differently, and given how much money it typically. Involves how much time or effort do you typically spend on arguing over interest rates? Is that something that you automatically, uh, you know, have a copy-paste thing for, depending on your position, or is it something that, because when you read the awards, that's the way I'm typically interacting with (laughs) the arbitrations. It's it seems like you know it it hasn't even been argued by the parties. It's it's two words Uh, by the tribunal and that's it.
4: Speaking personally, I take it seriously. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's an important part uh, of any submission. I think it's a point that you might also want to discuss with your experts depending on, on the case. Although, again, given the direction of, of case law, at least in the investor state context, there's only so much uh, you can do. I always pay attention to interest. If if, I have, if, if I'm in a jurisdiction where the, uh, the availability of interest is even in, di- in, in dispute uh, and I am a respondent, I'm also going to spend a lot of time as to whether or not interest is even appropriate at all before I get into a fight on the appropriate rate of that interest. So personally, I I, I take it quite seriously. Uh, You do have to ask yourself, how many pages can you actually devote to this? Um, A couple. Yeah, but a couple. I mean, the cost
1: benefit should be pretty clear if it's relatively big, the the risk for damages are big. I mean, the the interest might make quite a lot of difference in, in just terms of money
4: sure and, and it's certainly important but you also have to ask yourself how, just how much can you say on this point at the end of the day and, and you know so we take it seriously it is always an important part of every submission uh, that certainly that we do uh, but, but uh, you know just because you haven't spent 20 pages on it doesn't mean it isn't an important aspect of your case theory right you know Say, so who's it is it is it Mark Twain who said uh, I could have I could have written you a shorter letter, but I ran out of time. Right. Yeah. yeah uh, right. You know, I, length, you know, length of ink spilled on an argument does not reflect the amount of thought or effort or importance that go into it.
0: So if we're talking about, you know, the present, you basically are point um, hinting on the presentation of your arguments and the presentation, yes. not only written, but also orally. I mean, you're, as Joel said, you're kind of, you've been delving into the numbers for many, many years before you present in front of the tribunal. How what do you think is the most effective way without sacrificing, you know, not only accuracy, but the intricacies of your evaluation? How do you properly convey this to three people who possibly couldn't care less? Uh,
4: Well, I like to believe that tribunals do care about how much they're going (laughs) to award in in an arbitration. Um, I I think I, I think it depends on the nature of the case. Again, if it's a contractual case, it might be a a bit more of a straightforward math or legal or interpretation issue, you know, so here's the contract. What did the contract say? What does the law say? This is what I'm entitled to. Uh, You know, here are, here are the various invoices. Here is what supports, why I'm entitled to damages, and there you go, that's that. That's fine. And, you know, I don't think that there is a lot of magic to that necessarily. Uh, if you're seeking something that may uh, be arguably speculative, or arguably remote, I think you're going to want to bolster that argument as much as possible to show why it was expected and also why it, it, it is fair for those damages to be granted in those circumstances. Uh, in the context of investor state, arbitration is usually a fight as to how much a business or a business opportunity was worth. And this is, I think, where um, one, it can get very complicated very quickly, uh, especially if you're doing a discounted cash flow and if all sides want to play ball and have fights as to every single input into a discounted cash flow. Uh, and, and also you have a broader narrative dispute. And this is, I think, the first step uh, for a proper advocacy and investor state dispute is you need to properly tell the story of the business. Uh, And and this goes back again, I guess, to to the demoteran point I was saying earlier, which is what's the story? Why did this business have value? Uh, Why was this business going to grow and and why were the risks manageable? And and that's a qualitative story that one has to tell um, that also has to get supported by the data of the business itself. Um, so, you, you,
0: sorry. What do you think is like a good piece of evidence to use when you're proving this? Not only discounted of cash flow, but maybe loss of future profits or something. Is there a type of piece of evidence that you would typically use, like a business model, or I mean, it seems difficult to prove remoteness if you're, unless you're just telling a story.
4: Yeah. So um, there, there's a number of points here. One is um, if. You know, if everything was run properly at the time, contemporaneous documentation, ordinary course of business documentation is always quite helpful. Uh, So, you know, as in, you know, this this company was always uh, looking at its profits and losses, was always looking at at this, et cetera. And in the ordinary course of business, they were generating their anticipated cash flows throughout the year, for example. Uh, You know, they didn't do this with with uh, fear, with with with. with 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 any sort of you know ulterior motive, uh, they just in the ordinary course of business decided this is how much uh, we're going to make in the next three years. You know who knows the business better than they do. Uh, but otherwise, I think what you need is you need as many data points uh, as possible uh, to show other proxies for value. So right. you know I, again, if, if someone was themselves is interested in buying your company and they themselves have done a valuation or a bid for your company, that would be a relevant data
1: point how often is for that, that that, that happens and can you even locate these uh, arms length buyers or is that only in the scenario where there's an actual potential buyer that you know of or do you go about and do research and ask competitors well
4: you know, where you know you start uh, deferring to uh, you know some very clever people who work for consulting companies uh, or you know a lot of experts uh, will work in larger organizations. You'll have your expert themselves, uh, who you know is is in charge of saying, "I think this is how much is worth." I have experience in this industry, and, and this is what I know. But they also might have access to just excellent business research teams that can really scour available information uh, for any relevant uh, data points. You know, you know, for example, analyst reports. Um, analysts on a regular basis will will share their thoughts on things such as. Uh, how you know uh, predicted price lines of resources in the future or they'll say this is how much we think company X is worth at this point in time I know for the purposes of you know uh, of sort of getting out there in the market to say these are my thoughts on how much this business is worth Uh, so you know there is a lot of stuff out there the question is of course I think Joel this is what you're getting at to what extent is it on all fours Mm -hmm. Um, you know is it, the, it is, is it the right business on the right value or on the approximate valuation date uh, in similar circumstances, you know, that, that is rarely the case.
1: So um, how do you best structure your team when it comes to this? We, we already have the impression that not all lawyers are very sophisticated quantum people. Do you, do you uh, in, a, in an average scenario, assign one person on the team to, to run point on the, on the damages part, or is that something that you necessarily have to do with the whole team behind it?
4: Um, I, I mean, like, at least one person. I, I think, I mean, first of all, there's a the question of whether or not liability and quantum is being run in tandem. Uh, so, you know, in many cases, quantum will be bifurcated, uh, such that you'll already have a liability award And then you get to focus just on quantum and then and then you're just, uh, you know, just dealing with that particular issue. But if if you're dealing with quantum in in relation to all the other issues, including jurisdiction and liability, uh, I I think the most important thing is, yes, you need at least one person to run point uh, on on quantum at the very least. uh, But it's very important that that person doesn't operate in a silo. So, for example, you know, quantum needs to interact very well with your case theory on liability, because you are only going to get uh, the, the damages uh, for the stated breach that has actually taken place. So, you know, there needs to be open communication there. Uh, and furthermore, a lot of factual things that are established just generally in the evidence, the story uh, of the business, the story of the wrongdoing, could have direct implication on your quantum case. And, and, and a lot of quantum doesn't always relate to, you know, complicated calculations, but actual the factual bases uh, for those calculations that could seem to be you know, just innocent facts uh, that are in fact quite relevant on the assumptions that can be uh, used by an expert uh, in in in, uh, in in coming to the evaluation. I, I think the other thing to note in terms of staffing uh, is sort of everyone sort of staying in their own lane. So, what is everyone's role? So. It is a valuation expert's role to form an opinion as to how much either a claim is worth, how much damages has been sustained, or how much in the case of something like an expropriation, how much a business is worth. Uh, but they will need to make assumptions or take instructions or get further information. So, for example, if it's a very complicated business and some inputs into the business are beyond the expertise of the valuation expert, it'll be important to get another different expert with sector expertise uh, in relation to that business to essentially vouch for various assumptions that are made uh, by, uh, by, by the, by the valuation expert. Uh, and then similarly, what's the lawyer's role in asserting the relevant legal principles, for example? Things like what's the, you know, what's the burden of proof uh, in evaluation exercise? What are the applicable legal standards under the applicable law? Uh, What have previous decisions been done? So everyone has their own role.
1: It seems to me that it would be smart for an aspiring arbitration lawyer to be good at this. That's just something you should be specializing in. Do you have any concluding tips? For, for somebody in that position, any good books, any good strategies, maybe a favorite arbitral award that dealt with the, the quantum section especially well?
4: Um, I so I don't have a, a favorite arbitration award Thank on God. This. I I I, I, <laughs> I I have two comments on I'm just looking at my bookshelf at the moment. I'm noticing I do have a copy of the and on valuation and just getting an appreciation on how valuation takes place in the business uh, in the business context. Is, is what Professor De writes uh, an accurate uh, portrayal of what is done in arbitration? Heck no. Uh, but I think it's very useful to understand the basic principles of evaluation. I think this also just goes with the general notion, and especially you hear about this a lot in law firms, especially in the UK, of really wanting lawyers who can, I hate this expression, but, quote, think commercially. Uh, and I think it's just simply about... Uh, about, you know, thinking about how businesses work right. and how businesses operate. I mean, I think one of the most important things, uh, you know, a lawyer can do in relation to, to quantum, especially if they're working in a discounted cash flow, is just having a basic understanding of how they work. You know, things like my early years of the cash flow are worth more than the later years because the later years get discounted in value. You know, that that's it's sort of like, I think that I personally think that's an obvious point, but some people don't realize that that's an obvious point So, you know when the lawyers are having factual fights as to what would have happened in year, you know breach plus one Those are really important fights because it could have a real huge impact uh, on, on the valuation going forward an economic background is helpful, but <laughs> but not necessary. I don't I really don't think it's necessary like I'm blessed um, uh, there's, an, there's a colleague in my team with whom I, I work quite often and she, too, has an economics degree. Uh, so, you know, in that sense... Good I think, for I you. Quite, uh, yeah, look, we're quite lucky and, and I, I really like that. I, hope but I, I yeah, <laughs> Some of my best friends study so. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's, uh, it's not... Uh, you know, I really don't think you need a, an economics degree, but I do think you have to be willing uh, to, to embrace the principles. I, I think, and also, you know, in terms of doing a proper job evaluation it's not just about the economics chops. I think it's about really understanding your client's business Uh, or if you're defending a claim, understanding the other side's business. Uh, And so, you know, if you have a case about mining, you need to understand how businesses operate in the mining sector. Uh, How do they, how do they track, um, how do they track revenue? How do they track uh, expenses? Uh, How do they, how does exploration work? Uh, You know, so it's not just about, I know how to read a spreadsheet. But a lot of it is just, do I understand the business? Because it's really important that you understand that.
0: Well, that's a great way to end this segment and <laughs> a motivational piece to our listeners. <laughs>
4: Michael, thank you
0: very
1: much.
4: Uh, th- thanks very much, guys. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I really, I really love what you guys do.
1: lead us in on this because yeah. that would be the only thing I say and then it's the Brian show no <laughs> I
0: think it should be like t- ask me all the questions you have about billing
1: oh finally I got you <laughs> cornered I got a corporate lawyer cornered <laughs> uh, yeah, well, are we, we haven't even talked about this you and I are we talking about billing uh, when you're working for a law firm and you bill clients yes or, yeah. what's the other type of billing when you're a secretary for a tribunal, uh, you bill your hours? I think it's similar. It probably is, although I guess the considerations that go into how much you bill might be different. I'm t- trying to Very think true. of other contexts in which you're also billing for your time. Well, arbitrators, of course, are also billing for their time, usually depending on how they get compensated right under the institutional rules or ad hoc rules. And that's also different. I mean, it's, it's always the same kind of mind game because you want to get paid as much as possible but you also want to make it look like you're not working that hard exactly because you're a genius exactly that's the point
0: but that's why the scale changes that's why you charge more per hour because you're technically supposed to be more efficient in your work yeah so it ends up being all the same in the end that's the argument
1: Mm, yeah of course yeah yeah less experienced then you work more hours but at a, a lower cost, of course. Mm. So what is the going market rate for, uh, say, an associate in an international arbitration practice, like a two to four year associate, somebody to charge the client? Yeah.
0: Oh, that's like almost impossible to say uh <laughs> no because out of I'm, the corner <laughs> again <laughs> uh, be, no because first of all it depends on the
1: firm it depends on the country and I have a ballpark for for those of us who don't work in private practice is it 150 dollars. to, to f- 500 no
0: i would say like two two to 400 euros per an hour
1: okay yeah and then um what's the most expensive for like a partner level, yeah, like the the partner in the firm, the the names that we all know about. How much Actually, do you suspect that they charge their clients when they're acting as counsel?
0: Okay, because I I was gonna say it's different when they're acting as an arbitrator. I yeah, because I I
1: think arbitrator appointments don't really pay that well compared to what they make uh, working as counsel. Right, but I th-
0: right, but the hour charge out rate is more. I think. I've seen. The highest one I've seen was for an arbitrator, one of my cases. Uh, but I think you're looking at maybe like the most senior, senior, like six six 650 euros an hour. That's
1: actually less than I th- would have thought. Really? Yeah. I had some some notion that it would be actually be four-figure even for the most senior people. Maybe.
0: May- oh, I mean, I've worked in But that's in the not Swedish. based on...
1: Yeah, you're, yeah, exactly. But I mean, you're also in an international environment. You <clears> must have. But that's the thing. It, this is not something you see that much, and you, you never talk about it.
0: No, outside and of your firm. even within the firm, if you're talking about like how you bill, or because people bill differently and people yeah. monitor it differently. I mean, if you're the most like very stringent person on the way you bill, you're, there's a time, especially in our system, there's a little clock, and you press it, and then it starts ticking, and then t- technically, you know, when you're going to the bathroom, you, live like you this? tick off.
2: Uh,
1: glorified Uber drivers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but not everyone does that. Some people just say, okay, like, I worked from one to four. I maybe took a coffee break, so I'll just knock off 30 minutes. You know, it's a little bit more, uh, a little ad hoc in the way that you yeah, want it. Basically. But if you're doing it th- even that closely, that I would consider that, like, good monitoring of your of your time. But I know some people who have to, like, go back two weeks in their emails to figure out what they did on Monday two weeks ago. And they're like, oh, I kind of worked uh, a finger in the air four
1: hours for that. So now I'm going to charge four hours. And then I guess there's always a senior person anyway actually editing the, the billing before it goes to a paying client. Yes. Like, ah, four hours <clears> is too much. I think we only needed to work an hour and a half on this. So I'm going to change it. I guess that's typically what happens. It should happen, but not necessarily all the time. Because no
0: one has time to really like itemize. I mean, it is itemized, the entire invoice. But... It, the senior partner doesn't have time to go through and be like, "Well, uh, 250 for research on this issue. Should we have done that? No. I mean, mostly you're going to like review expenses or something like that. But, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the bill, I mean, but yes, if especially if you have a client who is going to look through the itemization because you don't always send your itemized invoice. But if you have a client that is going to look through the itemization, and I encourage clients to do that. Um, every time I have a friend who's going to hire counsel, I'm like, get an itemized invoice because then you can really see exactly what's happening and whether it was justified or not. But another thing to talk about is is maximums, or you know, quotas of billables that associates are faced with. Because that varies country to country. You have an average of 1,500 to 1,600 hours in Sweden, and then you have 1,800, I would say, is like an average in the UK, and then 2,200 is the average in the US. If you have... To bill 2,200 hours, I mean, let me do my awful, like, lawyer math. Let's just say it's, like, 200, 2,400, let's say. So you're doing 200 hours a month. <laughs> Already there, it's, like, billing. That's a lot. I mean, if I if I have a really good, solid work month where I'm just, like, really pumping stuff out and staying late and working a couple of weekends, like, you're billing an average of 180. Yeah. So you, that means you're, like, pushing it yeah. every month. Yeah. And you have sometimes you'll have hearings that you can really rack it up, but yeah, that's true. But you're asking someone to bill twenty four hundred, and that's just the quota. And then you got to get a bonus target.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, if we're up in this stratosphere of twenty four hundred, I guess you're in in good bonus territory anyway. Yes, in most places.
0: And as you can expect, what does these type of billables breed? Fraud in billing.
1: (laughs) Of course, because there is. I mean, the incentive is right there. Yeah. It's not that hard to see.
0: And it's such a weird incentive, and it's a really ethical dilemma to be like, I have reviewed this piece of paper 10 times, but an extra hour would be pretty good on my billables. Maybe I'll just review it again. I mean, technically, you're still doing work for the client. But, I mean, it's kind of this odd incentive. It's, it's really conflicting incentives on the same task.
1: Is this something that you talk about in the uh, associate community? both in terms of your targets and how you build, or is it just something that, like dress codes that you have to figure out just learning by doing over time? I think it's discussed with some people, especially if you're just about to enter that law
0: firm. Yeah, so if you're moving laterally. the, it's, the it's a the consideration, yeah. for sure, because that's going to determine your work-life balance and for the rest of your life at that firm. But um, I think it's... You also have to know that if you're moving to Sweden, you're not going to be under, like, the billable rifle to the head than you were in the U.S. And we, we face counsel from different countries, and we see their, you know, attorney's fees comes in when we just try to establish costs, and our fees were, like, a million dollars, and theirs were four million. Then you're just, like, I mean, there's there's a real,
1: like, mismatch here. And, like, where does that come from? This is why the Swedish court, the Court of Appeal in, in Stockholm, approved that Gary Bourne... Uh, Expert report when they challenged the Kazakhstan yeah. award, basically uh, on the assumptions in that this is what American lawyers do and charge. Right. So they said it was excessive by Swedish standards, but I guess that's what they do. So we'll allow it. Yeah. Yeah. And also you get, uh, you know, holiday in Sweden and paternity leave and other things that sort of interfere with the available targets that you, as, a, as a law firm associate in the U.S. is not on your radar Right. You're basically working. That's the thing. Everyone's the like, oh, you get to take a whole month in
0: the summer? It's like, yeah, but then I haven't billed 200 hours that month. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's almost And like... you're
1: also compensated accordingly, of course. I mean, yes. the, the, the comparison, Europe and then UK in the middle and then US in the top in terms of billables, that's also an accurate reflection of how you're compensated, basically. Right. You do three, four years at a US law firm and you're good for, for quite some time. You can pay off your Yeah, student debt. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Your life is probably not as... Right. I shouldn't say too much. I, I love you all, my friends working for, for US law firms. <laughs> They're not listening to this. They don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> They're billing somewhere. What, I want to ask you what about the uh, the billables that aren't billables?
0: Non billables, yeah. I was yeah. just going to. Yeah.
1: That. So, in my mind, judging from my uh, in total 10 weeks at two different law firms and summer associates, mm-hmm. there, as I recall, you had uh, n- non billables in the sense that just time that's wasted like stuff you're doing without any way of justifying it. Marketing. Yeah or, yeah, or you're just, you know, having coffee or whatever, stuff that's just... Yeah, non- yeah, yeah, And then you have, so, but when you say non-billables, you mean stuff that you can actually, you can account for the time and you get some sort of credit for it, but it doesn't go to, to bonus or quotas.
0: Depending on the firm, but yeah, yeah. but some firms have a non-billable quota.
1: Mm, and so that's like
0: non-profit and marketing and student yeah, uh, outreach. Yeah, like for that. example, I hosted the pre-mood all weekend. That's, we have a matter number for that and I get to bill
1: that matter, but I don't get any like credit for it. And what is typically the proportion between the billables and the non-billables?
0: I think we don't have one here, yeah. but
1: I've, I would just
0: say I know someone in a, another Swedish firm that has about 250 hours a year of non-billable work, uh, which is kind of a lot if you think about it. Mm. Um, it. That means at least every month you're having like 20 hours of work.
2: Related yeah, that's to true, but I guess work. also
1: if you, if you add it up, it's pretty easy to do that. And I'm assuming most of that is actually relatively enjoyable compared to document production.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're talking about pitches, articles, helping partners write their articles. <laughs> uh, you know, this moot stuff, meeting with students, going to promote the firm, speaking at conferences, teaching, all that stuff is non-billable. Podcasting podcast thing is not on my billable. Huh. If I did, I would have... It's just because you so are stupid. Many <laughs> I should. <laughs> Writing that down. No, but I think... And I there's a lot of things that are non-billable that I think should be billable for the purposes of... I mean, I think promoting the firm is just enough bringing in money as billing a client for it, even though it's not, like, directly relevant. I mean, I think it's, like, a fraction should be counted. Maybe it's, like, you know, every third hour you get a credit or something like that. Yeah,
1: but, but I I, th- I th- seem to recall that other firms, not in Sweden, they have more layered, it's like ABC billables, basically. You get different, oh. and some of them you can count more than the others.
0: Well, that makes sense. I mean, a lot of people, I've heard some firms are trying to do away with billing and just have, when you get Communism. a case, <laughs> when you have a <laughs> case,
1: <laughs> chaos, why do I write down how much I worked? Oh, you didn't work. You contributed to society. Right. How do
0: I compete? Uh, but so basically what you would do is you would sell a pitch a case to a client under basically a package fee, which I mean, you, you have in some cases you have like a blended fee agreement and you have an, a quote of how much it would be. So you basically say, OK, here it's a construction project. Here's this. You, we'll charge you. 200,000 euros for the jurisdictional phase, we'll charge you 300,000 for this and then, so your whole thing would be 1.5 million euros and you pay us in
1: installments Yeah, and then we, we work as much as possible. And that is on the assumption that the case is as complicated as you think it is at the outset. Can, yes. Do, do you then go back and renegotiate if, if the EU commission shows up with a, an amicus brief that changes <laughs> yeah. the jurisdictional phase? For or if example? there's provisional measures <laughs> yeah, that are exactly. happening.
0: Yeah, I mean, that would have to be renegotiated. But uh, it would be a way to kind of but then how are you, if, if, I, if I was a law, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it couldn't be, it, how it, it would have to be the entire law firm functions like that because if you had one matter that's like, this is our, we don't bill matter. No one's going to work on it. So it needs to be, but I think if you had an entire firm and that's how you operated, maybe, I, I would maybe say there's a less of incentive to keep you at the office. Yeah, true. Because you're not under the gun for anything. So you can maybe not read it that one last time. It's no real circumstance to It's a good
1: analogy here to our arbitrators and how they bill, depending on the uh, applicable arbitration rules, which is typically either one of the two. Either it's based on the amount in dispute, and then you get a, a basically, not a fixed, but like an interval, depending on how big the case is in terms right. of the amount in dispute. You get your, your compensation based off of that, or it's an hourly, just how many hours you spend. Those are the two major schools in right. international arbitration institutional rules i think and that it's the same argument basically i think that the one you just gave when it comes to if, if you're not billing per hour right. you don't have the extra incentive to spend more time doing it right but on the other hand i think a lot of arbitrators for them they don't make enough <laughs> you should really, you should really <laughs> unionize the international arbitrators community but they they oh, i've heard a lot of them complain because i know both the icc and the SCC, of course have the um, the uh, amount in dispute right. method that uh, if the case turns out to be way more complicated than the amount in dispute would uh, would indicate it's not worth it to the arbitrators in terms of you know, billable time like right. do- dollar or euros per hour spent might be much worse uh, well that's why the SEC gives
0: a range right because then they'll say okay well you earned yeah. the highest part of this range Do you, in the academic field is there any sort of equivalent or is there any type of task or...
1: Part? Experts. Right. I mean, the, I think we talked about this in some other segment. I have a, a very Our great experts collection. experts segment? For example, it <laughs> could have been the experts. <laughs> there are, of course, a fortunate number of professors who, who make a lot of money selling their expertise in arbitration. But there, I mean, you wouldn't even try to pretend that it's about the hours you spend. That, that's just a going market rate, right? depending right. on how how, how well-renowned you are compared to the other people in the field that might True. Be, be involved in the case. So that's just like, it's it's going to cost you X. And X has no relevance or so bearing on actually how much time I spend.
0: True. And I wonder how, and there's so much copy-pasting with re- repeat experts. And I wonder how much you could put a client under duress because you're like, all right, we're five years in this dispute, and I'm your expert. Now I have to
1: write a reply brief, and it's going
0: to cost you $200,000. Exactly. And I know there's, <laughs> what are you only, do? there's
1: only two other experts on uh, Lithuanian corporate law, and they're both engaged by the other side, so you really <laughs> right? need me. So it's going to cost you. Oh, that's dirty. Yeah, and I don't know that that actually happens, but uh, that's that's the way I would do it if I were ever an expert. Which maybe is in your future. I need to be good at something first. <laughs>
0: Until then, bill away, my friend. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I we encourage honest billing on this podcast and uh, also... I don't. You do. <laughs> I don't encourage the bathroom break. The bathroom break should be billable. I can think... <laughs>
1: and usually my brain doesn't shut off when that's happening. Yeah, but I mean, then wh- that's a slippery slope. Mm. So Ooh. when you take half an hour to, to go out and jog around Stockholm you think probably better then than when you're drafting shit, no? Yeah, that's true. Is that billable as well?
0: Sometimes mm-hmm. when I'm on the plane, yeah, I'm like in and out of sleep. I'm like <laughs> thinking about it, clicking the clock. Yeah, Friday night, fourth glass of wine. That's when I get the best <laughs> ideas. Right. I lean over to the passenger next to me. I'm like, when I fall asleep, can you turn this clock off? I'm billing. I'm on the clock here.
1: <laughs> oh, With that, I think we are over and out for, for this time. You can follow us... Uh, on Twitter at the Arbitration station, send us emails at the arbitration station at gmail.com. Um, um, that's it, no? Yeah. Great. Talk to you again next Tuesday.